The Octorentry, a podcast exploring the meaning of ecology, spirit, and human relationship. From Southwestern Australia, I'm your host, Byron John. G'day, mob. Welcome back to the Octarine Tree podcast. I hope everyone's staying relatively sane amidst this unprecedented mass abandonment of reason and common sense that we seem to be living through at the moment. Today's guest is Eliza Greenman. I have been following Eliza's work for some years now. She is really good at what she does and she's one of the few people who I'm aware of who really take this seriously and put a lot of effort into it and I take my hat off to her. What is it that she does? Well, Eliza Greenman is a fruit explorer, horticultural historian and designer implementer of agroforestry plans that integrate livestock and humans into tree crop systems and orchards. Outside of her farming endeavours on leased land, she is currently looking to purchase a location in Virginia to plant a tree crops repository for the southeastern US. The ultimate goal being to assemble as many genetics as possible to create a nearly endless fruit, nut and leaf drop scheme that will substantially or completely offset the cost of grain needed to raise livestock in the southeast. She also spends a great deal of time fruit exploring literally going around the country, the US, looking for old, rare, forgotten or hardy or heritage fruit species, fruit and nut species and varieties and kind of resuscitating the the populations of them. It's an amazing thing. It's actually, it deserves a lot more appreciation than it receives, I believe. Uh, In today's discussion, Elijah and I talk about the joys of botanical adventuring, the deep value of perennial staple crops, the tragedy of the grand American chestnut species, the mystical white oak, silver cultural hero J. Russell Smith, indigenous land cultivation, and stacks more. So um, let's get into it. I hope you enjoy this discussion with Eliza Greenman. Eliza Greenman, welcome to the Octarine Tree podcast. Lovely to see your face. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome. Now, I've been following your work for some time. You're part of the kind of greater regenerative agricultural contingency that formed something of a uh, international collegiality over social media over the last kind of decade or so, and you've been mm-hmm. doing some really interesting things. I have a great empathy and love for exactly what you do, which is kind of uh, silvicultural, botanical detective work and hunting. You're, you're a bit of an agricultural Indiana Jones. Yeah. I love that. So would you give us a brief background on where you're from and how you eventually found yourself playing with plants and animals the way that you do, and then we'll we'll flesh that out a bit. Sure. Uh, So I'm from southeastern Virginia in a tiny, like, fishing town, and uh, my mom always came home. Like, my mom had a real, like, bank job, like, had to wear heels, had to wear a business suit, and so every day she would come home and, like, throw her heels off and say something like, never get a job where you have to wear heels. And that really ingrained in me. And so I went off to school to get a forestry degree because <laughs> I was like, foresters don't wear heels. It's not even, the, it's not something that happens. So 
Uh, yeah. Um, I got a forestry degree and I graduated and I was just like, so disenfranchised with what forestry actually was. It was like gross old men and like making huge decisions, uh, simple decisions basically on vast swaths of land that wasn't challenging. I didn't like anything about it. And so I started on my day to day, like paying attention to what we were passing and the fruit trees and the nut trees that were within these giant forest stands that were being completely unevaluated by, by, uh, the timber companies. And, uh, from there it just grew like me wanting to learn how to cultivate, cultivate first, like non-timber forest species. But then that just became becoming an orchardist. And then that became like trying to find different niches for, for orchards and and what they can do. They don't have to just produce dessert fruit or they don't just have to be a you pick for some like metro area nearby. So really, I mean, that's completely abbreviated, but, uh, but how I got into what I'm doing is I have a major love for trees and their physiology. Like I really love learning about, how they grow and like the, the sort of mystical connections that get them to where they are today. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I'm, yeah, there's so many secrets. We just have to share, we have to save like the whole bio, bio germplasm because without it, I don't know. There's just so much to, so much unknown that, that we have. So. Yeah, there is a whole lot unknown and in, increasingly now there is a, a growing appreciation for the, complexities and once upon a time unknown and unappreciated the secrets of the life of plants i mean there's a new book every month it seems on that subject the same with soil you know it's been said that we know more about outer space than we do about the microbiology of soil and its complexities so you had a conventional background in forestry but parallel to that you were already kind of thinking outside of that box yeah, I was already, I was a kid that was always climbing trees. Like I knew which trees were strong enough to hold me. So that's how I started to know the species. I knew which trees fruited. So yeah, I mean, I was a bit of a feral kid. I guess one of the, I guess that doesn't really exist anymore. <laughs> it is rare, getting rare. But, you know, my mom, and dad worked. Yeah. And I played outside. And so I always had a connection to the trees and just decided to make that a profession. It it wasn't really a choice. It's just what I had to do. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. It is becoming rarer and rarer. I mean, I had a pretty free range upbringing. It was in the suburbs of Perth, Western Australia, but there was plenty of bushland around and a big river. Right. Yeah. My parents didn't care where I was until as long as I was home by dark. And then, and then we were good, yeah. but I always got yelled at for like the state of my pants or the uh, state of my clothes. Like my mom was like, I just bought those, yeah. <laughs> you know, and they're just trash. Cause yeah, I grew up in like wetlands. Lucky, <laughs> so, luckily, luckily it was probably the nineties and grunge was in. Right. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Um, so you've, you've studied under Darren Doherty as well. Have you, have you, have you, did you do a Rex uh, course or similar? I didn't. No, I've never had the money to do a Rex course. Right. Back in like my poor days. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm 
really poor, like, you know, trying to earn, trying to learn your craft and make like 50 bucks a week poor. Uh, yeah, that was like my informative age of, you know, several years in there. And yeah, I never could take the Darren Doherty course. Um, but I do, I do follow him and I do, uh, I, I followed him more when he was on Facebook, of course, but, yeah, uh, I've, I've been reading what he puts out and trying to piece it together. I struggle with water. Like my mind struggles with uh, land works and right. the movement of water and all of that. It's just something that it's not intuitive. To you? A, not at all. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah. It's more intuitive within a tree than it is on a landscape. Yeah. Interesting. So, interesting. Yeah. And that's one of Darren's fortes. He's got an amazing understanding of landscape and topography and how water works. I mean, that's, the basis of the agrarian's platform that he uses as a hierarchy of decision-making in, in land planning is based on a key line design by Australian PA Yeomans who, who apparently actually, and we'll circle back to this. I believe he was, he had correspondence with J Russell Smith at the very end of his life, but I could be completely tripping. I believe that. That I'm tripping? No. Well, either. But yes, okay. he was in correspondence. But yes, the key line design is all based on water and topography and, and whatnot. And it's something, it's actually not that intuitive to me either, but I've sunk my teeth into it and, and tried to make the most of it. So I'm just looking at a biome map. I'll actually share it with you that Harry Green brought to my attention. It's if the US was Eurasia. Nice. And I see Virginia is... China. No, actually, we're Japan. Yeah. Yeah, Japan. Right. Yeah. See, that was interesting to me because I'd always perceived the North, like Merit, New England, the North East US as very Western European. Mm-hmm. And that, that was how my mind kind of saw it. But it's not, in fact, it's Japan, China, and then Ukraine around the Great Lakes. And then uh, Canada and whatnot is Russia. Oh, that's a cool a, map climatic analog so could you talk us through a little bit about virginia it's its landscape and its biome and how it affected you so was it you grew up you said a feral kid playing in wetlands and in the woods so there was a there was slash is a fair bit of undeveloped wild land semi-domesticated or Mm, so when where I grew up uh, was a town called Pocosin, Virginia, and Pocosin in uh, indigenous language is basically like a rolling wetland. So a wetland that's got, you know, some hammocks and things like that. And uh, yeah, it when I grew up there, it wasn't, there was plenty, uh, I mean, you could just explore all day and not hit a certain, a single person. Um, but to, to these days after terrible, um, zoning laws and I, what I consider to be just super controversy and, and paybacks and like looking to make a quick buck and not looking to, at the long-term view, the, my hometown is completely sold out. Houses are built in wetlands now. Like it's not where I grew up is no longer, you know, a pristine piece of, of uh habitat for either my childhood or any anything else wild that lives there. Mm. But Virginia is a kind of a cool state because 
it's pretty diverse. Uh, you know, I've, I've lived and worked in the mountains of Virginia, the Appalachian mountains, um, that are super remote and, you know, like, uh, it's going to take you 20 minutes just to get to find Wi-Fi, like just driving mm-hmm. or 20 minutes to get to a gas station. Um, yep. and that's like subtropical almost. Yeah. Yeah, it seems that part of the world I find really interesting because it, like China and parts of Japan, the summers seem to be subtropical. Like there's mm-hmm. a real steamy, humid, you could think you're almost in the south of the US somewhere, and then the winters freeze over. Right. It's, it's, it's unusual. Yeah, and it's, it's pretty cool. So in, in the mountainous areas, you know, you're stuck basically with your winter limitations of yeah, you know, it can get to negative 15 in Fahrenheit. That's so strange for an Australian. I've never <laughs> experienced that. I've never experienced that in my life. Like as an Australian, we, we grow up dealing with the heat and the dry, well, depending where you are. Australia's a big continent, right? But largely speaking, it gets way hotter than it does cold. And I've never, ever experienced below freezing temperatures. Really? I had a friend who moved, friend, yeah, moved to Canada. And I remember him just saying, like, it's the craziest thing. It's like freezing cold. And people, if you go out to the pub, people occasionally get too drunk and pass out in doorways and freeze to death at night. And it's crazy. It's so alien to my headspace. Right. But do go on. Well, I mean, I'm in a temperate climate. I grew up in a temperate climate. It's normal to me. And, and or like a humid temperate climate. Yeah. And so, and it's oppressive. Like, I grew up in zone 8A. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, the humidity is just crazy. Like you think you're sweating, but it's just humidity gathering on you. Yeah. Like turn. Yeah. It's so for me, like I love it. I've embraced it as like this is a really hot hug. Yeah. A lot of the times, and like you're kind of in other people's armpits, but um, it's also and and it's incredibly hard to grow anything monoculturally here because of the it's like the final frontier of diseases and pests really like everything loves to live here everything loves it hot everything loves it humid yeah when it freezes over does that not mitigate issues like worms and pathogens for animals not nearly as long yeah on average the winter temperature is probably like it's above freezing on average in the winter time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's quite warm. Um, and where, where I live now in Northern Virginia is, yeah, still, I mean, most days are above freezing in the winter time. Okay. Uh, it's the, really the sweet spot where like cold hardy cultivars can live where I live right now. Okay. And also Southern cultivars can live. Mm-hmm. And it's just this meeting ground of amazing diversity. But humidity, it's hard. It's hard to work with it because we have humidity and we have insects. So Yeah. And yeah, so lots of fungal issues on plants, that kind of thing. Yeah, totally. Okay, interesting. I see there's a subtitle in your Facebook page, Elisa Greenman, the Fruit Explorers. Is that a business name? Yeah. Who and what are the fruit explorers? Yeah, so uh let's see. Back in twenty fifth so I I do a lot of fruit exploring. Um, mm-hmm. I so the reason why I can't how I how I ended up fruit exploring was 
which is literally just like looking for old cultivars of fruits and nuts or looking for um, wild specimens that are that could be important in today's age, like say they're disease resistant or, you know, there's not a whole lot of bugs on them. There's something special to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I apprenticed for a guy named John Bunker, who's a, an app, like an heirloom apple guy in Maine. And he sort of came to rise as the head of his, his nursery company because he was finding all sorts of old apple cultivars in Maine and finding the names to them. And he brought them all back. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I got, you know, he would take me fruit exploring with him. And I started to realize like, Oh, you know, I can be a lot more successful at this than John, like this cantankerous older man, like mm-hmm. people, people will answer the door for me if I, if I knock and they'll respond well. And so I started it. I started like doing cold knocks and, and everything and, and slowly finding all sorts of different fruits and nuts. But, uh, I met my business partner for the fruit explorers, Taylor Malone mm-hmm. at a North American fruit explorers conference. And he was like somebody my age, the only other person that was basically under the age of 65 mm-hmm. there. And he was doing the same shit. And, uh, so we started this company that really specializes in like, Hey, you know, do you have a, do you have a plant that you need found? Like, do you have, do you have a research topic that like, it's completely like, are you trying to breed a certain fruit or a certain nut and you need to have the best genetics possible to start from, to start from, um, where you're, where your people, but also we're doing a lot of archive work in order to find some of this stuff. So like, a lot of old organizations, a lot of old, gosh, like the Tennessee Valley Authority had a whole tree crops breeding program in the 30s that J. Russell Smith helped put together. Mm-hmm. And like we scanned that entire archive and made it digitized. And so now we can just search it. Awesome. And yeah, it's led us to like, you know, trees that won one national contest and such that are still there. So yeah, it's um the fruit explorers we do a lot of stuff but it's really anchored in trying to preserve and help bring about a more of a tree crops culture mm-hmm. but working with what we had and also looking at what we have now. Yeah. And uh you know trying to make it better. I find that so appealing like that ticks so many boxes uh, for me the botanical aspect of it and the kind of the historical aspect I, I love going and hunting around old settlement sites there's something about abandonment mm-hmm. that I find really fascinating the way old fields are reclaimed by woodlands and you get these woodland edge species you know, many of our favorite fruiting varieties and species are you know, a woodland edge, edge species in and of themselves. And I just think it's so important, like of all the things that we could be doing in this greater kind of sustainability discussion, to use a slowly outdated and greenwashed term, is to honor and appreciate tree crops. And in my personal opinion, I have a particular penchant for staple food producing tree crops, nuts, avocados, that kind of thing. And in Australia, it's very different to you guys. And I bring this up fairly often when I have discussions with folks from the US 
because you know contemporary modern post-colonial Australia and America and Canada even like South Africa, New Zealand, we have many things in common. We are these kind of the colonial children states of European enterprises. And there are many, many similarities, but there are also these great differences. One of the big differences between the US and Australia is how completely alien the Australian landscape and ecology was slash is to European culture. And, you know, I've done a fair bit of fruit exploring myself and it's always old homestead sites. You know, you can you, you drive through the Australian landscape, and if you're in out in the country, it sticks out like a sore thumb. Where you have an abandoned homestead site, even if there's no sign of a building left, you know, often it's just the crumbling skeletal remains of an old wooden hearth or fireplace. But around it, you have these trees, these old plums, often stuff that's grown back from rootstock. But you guys have a whole lot of native species that are very human friendly, one might say, that are either completely unique to the US or they're kind of analogs of many Eurasian species, right? Mm -hmm. What are some of the like native American tree crop species to your particular area? Some of your favorites or ones that jump out at you? Sure. Uh, well, black walnut is a start, mm -hmm. Jeglins nigra, um, where... Yeah, you know, to this day, it's kind of a, there's only one processor that takes black walnuts and he's kind of, they've kind of, hits Hammond's black walnut and they kind of have a monopoly on it all. Mm -hmm. uh, like they said, I heard something, I don't know if it's true, but it's like, there's a, I don't know, there's a lot of tales surrounding it um, that they've, they own all the black walnut huskers in the country in order to keep themselves like, the number one in the market. Right. Um, but yeah, people shovel black walnuts on into their trucks and come up to like, they rent Hammond's rents way stations and like de-husking stations. Uh, so people, where, people will like go into the woods with their car and a trailer and just shovel the nuts from the ground. Yeah. Wow. The black walnut, the nuts aren't quite as uh, superlative one might say, to other walnut species. The, the wood's extremely valuable as cabinet timber wood. Right. I think the most valuable on the planet. Old growth black walnut is quite up there. I think maybe, well, it depends what it's for. Like I just hung out with a guitar maker, a luthier, mm -hmm. and his, his jam is rosewood, you know, a lot of the tropical species. Um, yeah. He doesn't do much with, with a lot of our native stuff, except for like uh, red fur and things like that but right. yeah so there's black walnut which is um still it's not a, even though it's native and it's appreciated by many it's not in our vernacular necessarily as as a staple crop or one that we would even eat semi-regularly right um and it's that's like the older generation you know yeah you can find like black walnut brownies right but it's got a it's got a weird tropical bitterness to it okay it's like it's like floral and then it goes bitter yeah when you smell that like the husk of the fruit of the walnut or in fact that greater family the juglanaceae family pecan hickory butternut mm -hmm. it's an incredibly perfumed smell pungent yeah yeah so it does it, ha it has a bit of that to it a lot of that right okay <laughs> Yeah, but also, you know, hickories are native where I am. Pecans really aren't native. They were brought here uh, 
in the early, like late 18, well, it depends. They were brought here by white people in like ah. the late 1800s, early 1900s. I always thought they were indigenous. Yeah, indigenous for sure. So where were they taken from and to, are you saying? So around the Midwest, like in the Mississippi ah. River Valleys, um, Indiana, like there's, there's Southern pecans mm. that aren't, and then there's northern pecans, and I'm in the area of northern pecan. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, that's an Indiana pecan or, like, west of the Mississippi kind of deal. So southern pecans, they're native to the U.S., but down further south, and you mean the spreading of them around is post-colonial? Yeah. Okay. So, like, Thomas Jefferson is the one that named, I think, came up with the Latin for... Uh, Caria Illinoisensis, right? I think was actually Thomas Jefferson that wrote, that penned that, right? Okay. Um, yeah. So it's you know we're not. I would consider us in the range of like if I saw a pecan. I mean, I know it has people behind it. It's not necessarily wild here, but they they thrive. Have you read Tending the Wild by M. Cat Anderson? I have. I don't know how much I romanticize it in my head and how much is accurate, but again, I think it's being a, coming from being a European Australian that like if you wander out into the Australian bush and you don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of it due to, you know, being the recipient of indigenous knowledge, it's very, very difficult to spot anything edible. It'll likely make you very sick or kill you. If the stuff that looks like a palatable fruit is probably, you know, through the roof with cyanide or, or something else that'll make you very ill. So when I read like N. Cat Anderson's book about how there was not just the hunting, not just the gathering, not just the cultivating in a sense that European eyes recognize as agriculture, but there was this landscape-wide cultivation over generations and generations of time. Mm -hmm. And then that was not seen through European eyes. It wasn't appreciated. Can you see that in the landscape? Can you see that in the North American landscape? This kind of not to, I, again, I don't want to romanticize it too much. It's not like a continent wide food forest. Right. But can you see how pre colonial humans cultivated landscape at large? Yeah. Uh, a, fr a good friend of mine, Zach Elfers, who's also in this, uh, you know, fruit, fruit nut finding, truth finding mm -hmm. uh, mission. He's done a lot of work with hickories and seeing that in major um, waterways traveled by the indigenous to certain meeting grounds and summer, you know, summer scapes and then winter scapes that uh, the best like shell bark hickories he's found mm -hmm. uh, thin shells, yeah. big meat, like huge yielders are along those waterways. Right. And you know, I also, like I did a big research project uh, on behalf of Fruit Explorers um, to study elderberry. Mm -hmm. But Sambucus. One, Sambucus, yeah. But one of the things to like commer commercialize Sambucus is to get, um, is to like prevent the berry from falling off of the syme and right. so to get it to like hold. Uh -huh. The processing like completely irregularly it's indeterminate yeah um right. and so to make it determinate and the only like examples of determinate fruits in even in the berry family in the united states have been found in indigenous meeting grounds right so 
you know, there's, there's so much, it's like a whole other layer to uncover that, uh, has to be done. It needs to happen because these areas are getting developed. You know, it's hard. Sacred lands, unfortunately, um, have a hard time remaining sacred, um, these days in American. Well, everywhere, everywhere. And that's a, that's a huge discussion. And you're right. I, I, it's something that has gained an again increasing increasing appreciation from the Hoi Polloi and the likes of M. Cat Anderson's book. And in Australia, there's a couple of publications in the last decade that have made contemporary Australia rethink its uh, indigenous history and the dynamic and relationship that the indigenous had with the landscape. It's you know everyone knows of the hunter gatherer label, but this idea of mass widespread cultivation of landscape over countless generations of time. I find it so interesting and so appealing. And um, the whole permaculture idea of the food forest, right? I mean, I've never seen one that works, frankly, but... (laughs) Same. But if there is such thing as a food forest, in my humble opinion, it would be exactly what we're discussing. It's Mm -hmm. you either have a, a, a fully settled people... And the space around their camp, their village, their settlement becomes a food forest because, again, they're there for countless generations. Of course, you're going to cultivate. You're going to have your intensive cultivation. You're going to have your hunting, your fishing. Gathering is The gathering is going to be augmented by a cultivation of the best varieties within a radius of the settlement. But the same would be for like semi and fully nomadic peoples. Of course, you're going to cultivate. Of course, you're going to carry the best pecan seeds along your walk trails, which are likely going to be along rivers. And you have this multi-generational, slowly the human enterprise affects the landscape in what I think is an incredibly beautiful and positive way. Because if, if it's good for the human being in terms of calories, then it's going to be good for all sorts of other critters as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just the other day, I got invited to go look at this sort of, um, fan, I would call it a fancy project that was headed by, you know, backed by a ton of money. Mm-hmm. And they wanted my my opinion on it. And they were like, yeah, this road, you know, it became a road because it's an old indigenous pathway. And do you see it? What do you notice about the fruits? And I was trying not to bullshit him any, <laughs> but one of the major things I found was, or I saw was, hey, you know, you need to run the chromosome counts on these two, on these persimmons because the persimmon that we're looking at right now is a 90 chromosome persimmon. I'm almost positive. Um, it's shorter. I actually, one or the other, there's 90 chromosome and there's 60 chromosome. I always get them mixed up, but one's short and one's tall. One's uh, southern and one's northern. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I, you, I'm almost positive you've got both right here, like two very different phenotypes. Right. And, uh, and they're going to run them. They're going to run the genetics and, awesome. and try to see. But that's just proof of human selection mm-hmm. and migration before it was, you know, as, as a means of, yeah, cultiv- tending the wild, cultivating the best of the best and, yeah. and bringing them en route to wherever, you know, they were going. To me, that's a representation of the best of human ecology relationship. 
I just find it so beautiful, the most beautiful thing. And um, persimmons are actually, I'm very interested in them. They're, they're one of my favorite. They're amazing fruit. They're delicious. My favorite is actually the old varieties, old Asian varieties, the ones that you need to bletch, let them go mushy before you eat them. Right. I've always wanted to try the, is it Diasporus virginiana, one of the native, uh-huh. native persimmon. I've never tried it. There's one I found growing in southwestern Australia, one, and I've never seen it flower, let alone fruit. I don't think it needs a, uh, a, like a fertilizing poli- pollinator. Pollinizer. Yeah, thank yeah, you. pollinator. Apparently that's delicious. Have you've tried that fruit? Oh, lots. Yeah, that, so that's also what's growing wild around me. So I, I do a whole bunch of hunting for that. Um, and because the early, so like the earliest cultivar, named cultivar of uh diospias virginiana is called early golden Mm -hmm. and seeds from early golden basically like started uh that fruit culture in the united states Mm -hmm. but there's so uh, one there's so much untold given the indigenous you know just given the fact that there's different genetic there's 90 chromosome and 60 chromosome Diospyros virginiana, like intermingled and in different places. They were absolutely selecting for them. Wouldn't that be enough to call it a different species if there's different chromosome counts? You know, I don't, I I would think so, Um, but it's not. And maybe that's just because it's such a lesser fruit um, that it's really not been given. I don't know. I don't know why that is. Yeah. But also there's not very many cultivars of this the tall it's the taller one almost it's not a timber because it grows it still grows quite slow very hard wood ebony ebony family yeah beautiful mm. so maybe that's why it's just like i think i think it's the 60 chromosome that's the tall one okay in the south it just doesn't have any cultivars associated with it it's almost all the 90 or there's crazy like there's crazy ones that are that have different floydy um so yeah there's a lot of like mysteries in there and i live in j russell smith territory like Mm -hmm. i live i live on the farm next door to where he grew up really and yeah and uh the the neighbor let let me come over when i first moved there Mm -hmm. and i did a i did a whole analysis of her landscape and she's got some cultivars on her property that are like pre or like 100% grafted and they are pre early golden like you know pre pre name pre the naming of persimmons but mm. just like when humans were selecting for them in the, perhaps in the mid early mid 1800s is there any anything to indicate that indigenous americans were grafting or is that brought in purely with the Europeans? I have not seen any indications of it. Um, Cuttings, Mm -hmm. you know, just taking cuttings and sticking them in the ground, sure. Like my friend Nate Kleinman, who's been tracking a certain certain huckleberry uh, that that slowly travels across the landscape as it gets older, Um, those are from cuttings. What species is huckleberry? Oh God! Or like what family? Even 
What are we talking? What's the it's genus? In, it's in the blueberry family. Okay, so like vaccinium or something. What is it they're called? Yeah, yeah, it's a vaccinium. Before we get on to J. Russell Smith, there's a couple of other species from that area that I've fascinated with. One I'm yet to try. Again, I found it in southwest, but never seen it. Fruit that Asimona triloba. Ah. The Anonaceae family. It's ostensibly like a uh, temperate custard apple, right? Yeah, the pawpaw is what we call them. Call it the pawpaw, yeah. We sometimes call what other people call papaya. We sometimes call the pawpaw. You would have tasted your fair share of those? Yes. Um, so like 50% of people that eat pawpaws hate them or get sick from them. Really? And the other 50%, yeah, it's pretty much right down the middle. And the other 50% huh. love them. And I'm in the camp of loving them. Huh. Um, but, you know, it's it, there's a lot of research out that says that they, that, what is it called? Anonsinin? Anonacine. Anonacine, yeah. that's it. Yeah, there's a lot of studies that are saying, oh, you know, like these fruits actually contain quite a bit of that. And there's more research that needs to be made in order to like help guide pe- people's appetites for these things. Right. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's delicious. They grow wild where I am. Um, if you can get them, um, a misnomer often is that they like to grow in the shade. Yeah, I hear that. They don't fruit well in the shade. No. They grow plenty because they're clonal. They sucker, don't they? Mm-hmm. The other species that I find fascinating from that part of the world, and the story is tragic, is the American chestnut. Mm. That was all up through Appalachia, right? That would have been growing through Virginia. Yep. I urge people to go online and Google image search for the American chestnut. Is it Castanea? Dentata. Dentata. Castanea dentata. Google image search and have a look at these trees. So when Eliza tells you that they were big, you realise that we don't mean just a large chestnut tree. It's kind of Valley of the Giants, almost looks like a sequoia big. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Like redwood diameters, you know, reaching upwards of 120 feet or so like quite large trees. So there was an old adage, or or maybe it was a quite new adage, I'm not sure, that they used to say you could travel, a squirrel could travel from Georgia, which is in the southern United States, to Maine, which is the northeast tip, on the backs of the American chestnut without ever touching the ground. Mm. And I always really absorbed that and was like, oh, that's so amazing. And it's also so tragic to hear about how many have lost, have been lost. But there's an interesting paper I read um, that this dude went through all the land. Uh, the, when people were, mo- when Europeans were, were hitting the scene, they had to do all these land surveys here in the United States. And so he was reading through all of the land surveys and finding that no, like uh, the the American chestnut wasn't necessarily in the Piedmont areas, or, which or in the foothills, they pretty much stuck strictly to the Appalachian Mountain Range, right. and it wasn't they weren't nearly as 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 profound as we thought. At least going through like historical um, surveys, which was interesting to me, but okay. ne- nevertheless. It's an incredible tree. It was an incredible tree. The passenger pigeon yeah. was completely reliant on it. And when 
when the chestnut died out, so did the passenger pigeon for their, you know, annual, abundance. they fruit annually late. So they're frost free. Um, and, and just like huge yields. By the time uh, Europeans arrived in the Americas, there's this species, you know, maybe its range was exaggerated, but running along the Appalachia mountain range and forests of giant chestnut trees. And you I mean, you talked before about people shoveling up walnut fruit off the ground. I imagine mm-hmm. the, the yield of the calorific yield, especially in, if they had a bumpy crop every few years, would have been absolutely unfathomable. Like huge. Yeah. The amount of food that they provide and chestnuts are incredible because they're generally very low in tannins. So they're really palatable for anything that can actually get into the nut. Mm-hmm. So what happened to them? Yeah. So we got well, one of the things that that happened was uh we got the the chestnut blight that came over from China. So and it was probably, I don't know who imported the trees. It was probably Quakers. And I'm a big fan of, follow, I, I consider myself a bit of a botanical historian when it comes to Quakers. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, they imported a Chinese chestnut that had the blight on it. And it essentially was something that our American chestnut had not co-evolved and to to be able to handle. And it literally has killed... Uh, almost all of them. And so to this day, though, the roots in these areas still sprout chestnuts. There is a percentage of the original trees that for whatever reason were genetically more resistant to the blight and they survive and they attempt to sprout back every year, like a coppice almost. Well, I don't know if they're genetically superior, but most, yeah, most of the American chestnuts that are, that died back to the ground or were cut. A lot of them were cut, which is the big thing. Right. We don't know if there was a lot of genetic resistance because all throughout the Appalachians was just like a free reign. Like everybody cut them because they're going to die. A lot like what we're doing with our ash trees right now that are dying out quickly. Someone saw a, an economic opportunity in, in all that timber and used the blight as reason to justify cutting them all down. Exactly. And so to this day, yeah, there's a lot of coppice where, you know, they might get old enough to fruit. So they might fruit on like three years of wood or something. But then the blight takes them right back down to the ground. And it's just this cycle. Well, if they're fruiting, though, that means you at least you have some genetic diversity to play with and to potentially breed blight resistant varieties. I mean, and I do believe there is some work going on, isn't there, to do that? Yeah. To breed them? The American Chestnut Foundation, well there's there's a couple different kinds of work going on. The like most the the best funded is from the American Chestnut Foundation where they were trying to breed in a Chinese basically the the part resistant to to blight for the Chinese. Mm-hmm. is what they're trying to breed into the American. And it's not, it did work. Like, uh, so now they're going the GMO route because their breeding program was faulty. But there's some other organizations, the Chestnut, I think it's the American Chestnut Cooperators or something like that. I'd have to look it up. But they're the ones that are selecting the 
the chestnuts that are still standing, like big old chestnuts that, yeah, they have light, but they're still standing and they haven't ever died back to the ground. Um, and so they're breeding with those genetics. And from people I know that I've talked to and seen their work, it seems to be heading in a positive direction. Yeah, good, because, I mean, GMOs, if, you know, that's one thing, but and hybridizing is one thing, but if the remaining trees are actually fruiting, I mean, those fruit are genetically diverse. They're distinct from the parent, and that alone gives you opportunity to select for hardiness, right? Exactly, yeah. And and another thing, I mean, in the United States, like the chestnuts were also, much like the black walnuts, the chestnut was valued for timber. Um, and so the American chestnut to this day is sort of lionized as one of the best timbers we ever had. Mm. And like, for instance, I live where I live, we have a house that's a 17 built in 1738. That's made out of purely out of chestnut. Um, but so, so there's part of the reason for bringing it back, at least from the American chestnut foundation is for the timber. And they're having a hard time with the Chinese phenotypes, like mm. uh, <laughs> intermingling. So, yeah, it really would be interesting. I think it's worth it to pursue more American genetics. I think so. Both from, yeah, a fruiting perspective and just getting that timber back. You couldn't design a more valuable species. And, I mean, mm -hmm. valuable, intrinsically valuable. I just find them absolutely incredible. What a strange, tragic tale. For sure. I've not spoken about this chap before on the podcast, but he is an absolute hero of mine. And you, as much as anyone on the planet, appreciates him and knows about his work. Would you speak to the audience about J. Russell Smith, who we've already mentioned briefly. Absolutely. So J. Russell Smith is from Lincoln, Virginia, in the like very tip top of the state of Virginia. And um, he's from a Quaker community uh, called the Goose Creek Quaker community. And that's important because Quakers basically like founded botany in the United States right. and um, are yeah, largely in charge of like all major botanical shifts that we've had um, in terms of like bringing popularity to tree crops and or, or plants in general. Mm. And so uh, J. Russell Smith, yeah, he grew up in this in this town next door to this dude named Yardley, Yardley Taylor, who was like, an amazing botanist, an amazing horticulturalist. He traveled the world. He mapped out the whole county. And this was like J. Russell Smith's father's age. And so I, and, and, and his property is chock full of grafted trees, like 250 year old grafted black walnuts and such. Mm. So it's, I'm 100% positive that J. Russell Smith started to like really latch on to this horticultural know-how and the importance of capturing um, the right cultivars for the right use mm. then. But he was a geographer, so he traveled around the world and started to see examples of the Dust Bowl happening in China and happening all around the world. And he was like, "This, oh my God, this is going to happen in the United States unless we do something. Mm. Um, and so he came back and he was like, we got to start using fruit and nut trees as staple crops for our, you know, 
for humanity, basically, in order to prevent erosion. And and there's nothing, I think I read something where he said, like, there's nothing less patriotic than watching your topsoil wash away. <laughs> and it's actually something that's always surprised me that it's not mentioned as much as I think it should, the, the rise of the United States of America for all of the other things that it had going for it to become so prosperous and, and powerful for better or worse was the fact that the landscape itself was so goddamn abundant and rich and supportive of human and agricultural enterprises. The forest, the woodlands, the water, the topsoil of the prairies, to turn those prairies that had these deep, chocolatey, rich soils born of the relationship between the big herds of bison and the predators hunting them and that whole holistic management approach to viewing that stuff with topsoils that were, you know, metres deep, tens of feet deep in some places. And to turn that into a dust bowl is remarkable. Sorry to interrupt. No, and it's it's absolutely heartbreaking to think that, I mean, his his thing was, you know, you go from forest to field to plow to nothing. Yeah. And so his thought was, we got to we got to start selecting. We got to start tending the forest, but also we got to start planting trees mm. where we plow. Um and so he founded this group called he was one of the founders of the Northern Nut Growers Association and this was in the early 19 in 19 wow. in the early 1900s. And he pulled together it was basically like a bunch of Quakers and a bunch of like tree and nut fanatics that got, that got together and they all agreed, yeah, you know, we need to fully develop, we need to develop our native trees into trees that will provide staples for us as Americans or else we're doomed. For those listening, a staple food crop is, well, humans being omnivorous mammals, we've got there's fruits and vegetables and berries and whatnot and all the things that provide mineral-rich micronutrients. And then there's the staples, which is what our net bodies require bulk of and carbohydrates have been questioned in recent years as to whether or not they are actually required. But anyway, a staple food crop traditionally for humans is carbohydrates, starches, fats, oils, and proteins. So tree crops that produce staple food crops is what we're talking about. And like I mentioned earlier, I mean, of all the things that I believe we should be focusing on, in terms of the development of sustainable systems, regenerative systems, staple food producing perennial plant systems like trees are um, incredibly important. And J. Russell Smith is one of the kind of forefathers of this thinking in the contemporary age. Sorry to cut you off yet again. No worries. He and this group of people, the Northern Nut Growers, really started to get their act together. And not only were they combing their native environments this is by the way like the northern how the northern pecan got to virginia right. was um there's a man named thomas littlepage who was another founder of the northern nut growers that believe he his family like his dad died early and so he had to support his family as like the oldest son um like his mom and his brothers and sisters and the way he did it was on pecans and so he had this, once he like grew up and actually, you know, the American dream of, he had like a sixth grade education and ended up working in Cong in, in the Senate <laughs> as a lawyer. But uh, his major thing was 
pecans basically saved my family. And so they, they can become a major staple in our diets. And so he started bringing them East and, and he commercialized them as like, you know, nouveau, you gotta, you gotta plant these. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of people like that, but J. Russell Smith was just uh, limitless in his efforts. I mean, when you, we've scanned a bunch of his archives uh, and the amount that man wrote on a daily basis is unbelievable. Right. Just, I mean, relentless to the cause of, of trying to get tree crops as, you know, like walnuts as the, but the, the butter chestnuts as the bread, like mm-hmm. persimmons as the major fat carbohydrate, like sugar, you know? Um, but uh yeah and to the point where he was nominated to be the the director of secretary of agriculture for the united states Mm. and he he turned it down in order to just keep pursuing the cause which looked to be going really great like he had he had helped to convince the united states government to start a breeding program Mm -hmm. for tree crops Mm -hmm. uh the northern nut growers had held insane nationwide contest for Mm. the best of every species like the like the white oak the best white oak forget it love the white oak quercus alba (laughs) yeah and as as a quick aside, like we found it, we found the winner of the nationwide oh, really? white oak contest. Yeah, really, because because Bill Mollison back in the day, co-founder of Permaculture, used to talk about this mysterious, almost mythical white oak that had been discovered that was so palatable. It was virtually tannin free; yeah. you could eat it off the ground like a chestnut almost. But and he used to say, you know, if anyone can find that, then please let me know. You went and fucking found it. We found it. Well done. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. But th- the thing is, is like, well, I guess I'll just tell you how we found it if you want to hear it. Yeah. Um. So Taylor and I knew that these these contests were held through the Tennessee Valley Authority. And so we we're like, all right, if there's going to be any information about these winners of these nationwide contests, like, we got to go there. Like, we got to go to the wherever they're. those archives are hosted and just scan them all, you know, take pictures of every single paper there is. And then we have some computer software that takes pictures and and turns them searchable. So we can just type in anything Mm -hmm. we want and it pulls up. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I was on a bender because we both go on benders to like find some fine stuff and we make, you mean heavy drinking. No, not heavy drinking, but like heavy, <laughs> yeah. heavy researching. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes drinking is involved. Yeah. But uh, yeah, and like after 18 hours of like solely looking for something, um, we found the map wow. from the guy that that sent in the winning white oak acorn and... Wow. Uh, in associated notes. To me, that's, that's like an adventure fantasy film moment for me. Like you found the map to this mythical, famous tree, this white oak. I think that's amazing. Yeah, well, you wouldn't, you know, that happens quite a bit in what we do. And you can't like, you can't build yourself, you can't get excited about no. it because half the time or three quarters of the time, they've been cut down. Uh, but 
kills me. This tr- and, and that's and that's like super heartbreaking. Mm. <laughs> but but this time we we pulled up Google Earth and started looking around. And you're like, you know what? I think that tree's still there. And so it was like three hours by car for me to get there. And so I immediately, like the next morning, I woke up at the crack of dawn and just hopped in my car and went. And sure enough, there it was. Wow. Like, like there's still a branch that shows that it was cut by, you know, like 80 years ago mm. in order for them to get scions off of it. Because because mm-hmm. uh, John Hershey, who was the understudy of J. Russell Smith, went there personally but yeah the acorn is no perceivable tannins wow that's incredible wheat as a chestnut like yeah it's not a heavy bearer for people who aren't quite sure what we're geeking out about there's about 800 species of oak and there's an amazing book called oak the framing of civilization by a guy william logan william bryant logan it gives credence to how important oaks have been in human history and before the advent of agriculture annual grain agriculture. If you were living in Western Europe, North Africa, all throughout Eurasia, North America, pushing down into Mexico, acorns were part of, if not your, the staple food product. And it's called balanoculture, where people, peoples mm-hmm. who a large part of their diet is based on acorns. So anyone who's seen a large established oak tree drop its crop, its mass during a bumper season will appreciate how much food that is. Now, oaks are very closely related to chestnuts. Well, not very, but close enough in the same family, Fagaceae. One of the main differences in the nut is that the chestnut has way less oils and tannins. So an acorn is very similar to a chestnut, but it's oilier, but it has these tannins in it, which are a secondary compound, which too much tannin in anything can inhibit the digestion of proteins in a mammalian stomach and is ostensibly a toxin. There are people around the world who are appreciating that oak could be again, as they have been in the past, a really, really important food producer. And there's this kind of hunt for the lowest tannin species and varieties to then breed them. Like the Mobbit oikos tree crops are one of the only people I know who are actively breeding acorns for human consumption. Eliza, I'll send you a link to a paper I wrote. It was published in the annual journal of the International Oak Tree Society. It was called Dehaser Australis, and it was about establishing stands, collections, arboretums of the best staple food producing agroforestry trees and breeding them for uh, food production. But anyway, I cut you off yet again. Don't brag. Stop talking about yourself. Don't blow your own trumpet. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. Me, me, me. The Byron show. So <laughs> this the white oak. You found the white oak. Found it, yeah. And that's just one of them. You know, like I my in terms of oaks, like my holy grail is one that was referred to as Juicy Hog Biscuit. Right name. Uh, yeah. And it's it's a swamp white oak. Quercus bicolor, one of my favorites. Quercus bicolor, yeah. And apparently, yeah, I, I mean, it apparently dropped annually wow. and heavily. 
and very, very low tannin. Like you could still pick them up and eat them. Mm. Have you ever done that? Have you have you personally had an acorn that's so low in tannins you can chew it without puckering? You know, after you try like 50 of them in a row from different trees and every single one of them turns your mouth into cotton, mm. I don't I do not do it anymore. You know, right. every now and then, if I see something that's pretty majestic, I'll try it. Yep. But yeah, the tannin, the tannin memory game is... It really keeps me from trying a bunch of acorns all the time. So Jay Russell Smith, could you talk about his most famous publication, which is uh, Tree Crops of Permanent Agriculture? Basically, it was this sort of, I don't know, for a lot of people, it was this mind-bending book that was way ahead of its time that, yeah, he had seen, as a geographer, he had seen these dust bowls happening everywhere. And in order to try and stop it, he started identifying from a nutritional standpoint, all of our native trees, or at least like, if they're not native and analog to our native trees, like, you know, the Japanese persimmon, for example, um, that would handle our dietary needs and that could be grown without tillage and, you know, just drop fruit on us. All the time. Because tilling was destroying the topsoil. Correct. Tilling was destroying the topsoil and causing it to wash away into the ocean, Um, at least in Virginia, but ultimately everywhere, like into our major river riverways that eventually headed into the ocean. So, um, and and if it wasn't for people, the other tier of it was he basically put together a whole bunch. He started identifying cultivars of fruits that would be great for livestock or silvopasture. So that's how um, like mulberries came to the scene. In the United States, mulberries are nothing. Right. Like and they we and we have such an incredible diversity of mulberry here. Because we have our own native mulberry, but we also have the like colonial era of mulberries that were planted mm-hmm. over the course of 300 years. Yep. And so we have these incredible mulberry specimens. And so he started to give rise to, like, for instance, our native mulberry is the red mulberry and the Asian mulberry is the white mulberry. And when those two hybridize in the United States, sometimes they form, there's like this genetic quirk Mm -hmm. that causes the mulberry to become ever-bearing. Yeah, right. And so... The long, which means what? So it means it keeps producing the more. So the more new growth of wood you get on the tree, it keep every bud basically throws fruit out of every new bud right. is throwing fruit. Amazing, which is crazy to think about. Um, yeah, and so in the United States, like he had, he was one of the first to identify uh, the Hicks Everbearing Mulberry for its uses. Because in the deep south, like zone nine, zone eight, high eight, zone nine, he was seeing that these mulberries would start fruiting in May and they would continue on through July into August Mm -hmm. and just in prolific amounts of fruits. Like, um, let's say 40 you know a mature tree like a 10 year old tree was dropping 40 pounds of fruit a day for months (laughs) you know and so he started to say okay well you know what 
that use is going to be for pigs. Uh-huh. And and the Amer- in the American South, like really to this day, like there's one remaining stand of Hicks Everbearing Mulberry that I've found that um, was planted for pigs mm-hmm. to rage, you know, to graze pigs underneath. Yeah. And that was back in like 1850. So, so yeah, J. Russell Smith was sort of like this amalgamator of cultivars of the best of what we had at the time mm-hmm. and giving them uses um, in order to make it really try and br- create a movement. He did create a movement. I mean, his book is cited as one of the foundational inspirations for Holmgren and Mollison's development of permaculture. And it's almost a hundred years old, that book. And I think it was the 1920s it was published and it's still an absolute foundational piece and as relevant as ever. And he did a fair bit of traveling as well, didn't he? He went around all over yeah, to investigate tree crop systems from around the world. Yeah, I mean, where I am, he imported, he traveled to China and Japan and brought back with him the like the most cold hardy Asian persimmons he could find. Mm -hmm. And those today are still grafted around um, in in the vicinity of where I live are a few varieties of the and they're still living, you know, they've been living, living here for 60 or 70 years now. and yeah, I mean, a lot of, he, he would bring back, he imported a bunch of chestnuts from abroad. He imported, he was importing all sorts of stuff, but he wasn't in, in the United States back in, you know, the early 1900s in mid 1900s, we had a lot of money set aside for plant and fruit exploring in other countries like our government did. And he was never, with under those government dollars, but he was doing his own self work. Um, and, uh, yeah, really, really incredible. And unfortunately his nursery where he was whole, he planted out all sorts of stuff Mm. and he had like this 1100 acre farm. And unfortunately a developer bought it in the eighties and uh, just, I mean, there's like God, that's so almost nothing left. I know it's bad, but every now and then in a backyard, there's a number of stories. Like that. Yeah. I mean, that's just how it is right now. You know, you can't, you can't get yourself down about it because otherwise you'd just be depressed all the time. You go, go crazy. There's actually mm-hmm. um, the USDA tree crop department Institute, whatever they had a, the world varietal collection of caribs in California that was bulldozed to make a parking lot for a walnut, I believe, but not before an American PhD named Dr. Henry Esbenshade actually collected cuttings from all of them and moved them to Australia. So we have now inherited the world varietal collection of caribs off the US. Oh, that's so good to hear because that shit happens all the time. Like I gave a talk not too long ago that was basically like, we need to hold universities in the USDA accountable somehow for our repositories because I cannot, I mean, the amount of loss mm. that they go through just because of budget cuts, yep. it's not It's not okay. No, it's not like, okay. It's something that I've been trying to raise awareness of myself and that's what that whole DeHacer Australis article is about in part. Stop talking about yourself. We need to start paying more attention to these things. They are invaluable, invaluable. 
Yeah. Just because they're old doesn't mean they have less value. You know, they were the best of the best and there's been no breeding (laughs) that's accompanied that since. And so, you know, it's maddening. I'm with you. We're on the same page with that. Thank you so much. I've probably held you long enough been fascinating it's an absolute pleasure to chin wag with a silver cultural nerd another one i really really appreciate you taking the time is there any way that people can go in particular to sniff out your work online if they are interested yeah um i have a bit of a crazy it's more so apple and like silver pasture centric mm-hmm. blog mm-hmm. that's uh called elizaapples.com e-l-i-z-a-p-p-l-e-s and then but you can all get to that through my business website, Hogtree, hogtree.com, H-O-G-T-R-E-E. Hogtree.com. And that's like my consulting page and my blog and my, you know, I also sell charcuterie that, um, you know, I'm working toward, that funds like basically getting repositories set up, awesome. uh, private repositories, but that hopefully like, will contribute largely to what's getting planted in these agroforestry systems. Like, let's get these people better genetics. Well, pigs and tree crops go together like peas and carrots. (laughs) You're doing awesome work, Eliza. It's really important. And um, I take my hat off to you and thank you personally for it. It's, It's awesome. Thank you for doing what you do. Yeah, thanks. And thanks for having me on here. It's it's great. I'm sorry I've jumped around a bit, but no, no. there's such big topics that I could speak all day. I could listen all day. <laughs> Come back on some other time and we can flesh things out even further. Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. All right. See you later. Bye. Ta-da.